Treason, Sedition, Rebellion. This is the heritage of the American patriot. Those revolutionaries who stood on principle to fight against tyranny no matter the cost. And that spirit lives strong today in the activists and freedom fighters who fight against the authoritarian state. Each in their own way, each with their own mission, united for the cause. had the idea to run on a platform of fuck the police prior to actually winning the primary. Uh, I mean, AOC is a drama queen and she's full of shit. They said, you don't get to tell us no, we're in the state health department, and I said, hell no. You brought a freaking guillotine. People already pushing back in ways that didn't even need any votes to be cast. I'm not ratting on anybody, and I did what I did, so you're going to have to give me what the law says you have to give me. You want to make the world a better place? Have some babies, and raise them to not be stupid. Hope I don't get canceled. Talk to you. These are the people whose stories I'm here to share. I'm Justin O'Donnell, and this is Submersive. Man, governments are not going to like this shit. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, activists, anarchists, and shit posters on the internet, thanks for tuning in for Subversive 68. As always, I'm your host, Justin O'Donnell. And before we get started, just remember, whatever platform you listen on, whether YouTube Live, Odyssey, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, or on the air through LRN.FM, you can help grow the show by liking, commenting, subscribing, and sharing with your friends. And if you enjoy the content, you can join the Insurrection production team by visiting patreon.com slash O'Donnell. Again, that's patreon.com slash O-D-O-N-N-E-L-L. And make sure to check out our sponsor, snackswag.com for all your favorite Liberty Subversive merch, including some brand new official designs for t-shirts, hoodies, coffee mugs, and more. Again, that's over at snackswag.com where you can wear your Liberty messaging literally on your sleeve and rep your favorite brands and campaign merch today. Now, if you want to keep in touch between shows, follow me on social media and join the community Discord channel where you can chat with other fans of the show at any time. Then all these links can be found in the description of the video or podcast you're listening to. So make sure you check them out today. Now, everybody has something that makes them tick, something that makes them drive, something that motivates them to take leaps of faith and do things they never thought possible to even imagine themselves doing before. Now, whether that's skydiving, bungee jumping, going back to school, getting married, buying Twitter, or running for Congress. Each of those things is absolutely terrifying in its own right when you really break it down and look at what kind of a danger and a risk you're taking. Each has its own risks, its own rewards, but what possesses someone to do the least likely of them? Run for Congress as a third-party candidate against a hugely popular incumbent in America's biggest city, on the biggest stage. New York, New York, the city so nice they had to name it twice. I don't know. But to answer that question tonight, we have a family court public defender, libertarian activist, and a literal cat herder, Jonathan Howe. Jonathan, thanks for joining us tonight. How are you? I am very well. I have had a long day. As you said, I am a public defender. I got back from Rikers Island at 8.15 this evening after working a full day in court and then going to Rikers, and then I did a campaign call, and then I changed back into my suit for you. After this. Uh, so I'm very excited to be here. I, I mean, that's more honestly, when I look at your resume, aside from literal cat herder, which I don't think I've been able to actually say of anyone other than as a joke of libertarians, um, but it, it's great what you do with like trap and neuter and release and stuff. Uh, and it's something like not enough people know about how important it is for like feral cat populations, especially big cities like New York. Absolutely. But like being a public defender, like how do you land in that kind of a life? Like how do you go to law school? And then decide, I'm going to be the lowest paid lawyer out here. 
Oh, well, it, it was the exact opposite way. I applied to law school, and in my application, I said, I want to be a public defender. Uh, and I think this may be the full place, uh, the first place that I've told the full story, so I may as well. Oh. Um, I was bartending for a while. I was working at a beer bar. You know, I, I, I loved the job. You know, I got very flexible hours, made pretty good money. I met a lot of lawyers. They were all miserable. Uh, and then one day, on a weekday, you know, when I didn't have to work, I was doing mushrooms on my roof. And when I woke up the next morning, I had applied to law school. Uh, or I applied for the LSAT, and I was like, "What would have, what would have prompted me to like think to do this?" Like when I like I I, I didn't like have a, a clear understanding of it, and I said, "You okay, had to commit a felony to decide you wanted to help other people get away with it." And, and I said, "Well, <laughs> what do I do at work all day? Like technically, I serve beer, but really, what I do is I talk about libertarian stuff to people who are sitting in front of me. Because that's that's really what I did as a bartender was just talk about politics with people and annoy them with libertarian stuff and say why we shouldn't go to to rush." go to war with Russia over Syria, you know, back then, uh, you know, that's all I did all day. And so I'm like, I need to stop talking about the stuff that I'm upset about and actually do something about it. So if I'm going to go to law school, I should be a public defender. And so I wrote that in my application. I said, this is what I want to do. All my internships were in public defense. I went all the way to Texas to do a, an internship there in the middle of nowhere. I lived in a trailer for four months. It was awesome. Um, I, I came back, I did internships all around here. Uh, I did one with my, my current employer, which is the Bronx Defenders, and it, it was just the most amazing institution. And so I applied there, and now I work there. Uh, I would not practice law if I could not be a public defender um, or something very, very similar. Uh, you know, I, I don't think there's many useful roles for government generally, uh, but the most useful role is to protect you against the government. Uh, and that's what I do. Right. And that's not even necessarily a role for a government, but it's it's weird as someone who's an anarchist and who believes in the lack of government, when I look at a judicial system in any kind of judicial system, this kind of becomes one of the unsolved questions of modern anarchist philosophy is like, well, what do you do with the bad people? Um, because like the moment you create a prison, the moment you do any kind of criminal justice, congratulations, you're now a government. Um, but everyone should have an inherent natural right to be defended against accusations. And, um, when we've created a system that is so far out of its way to disenfranchise people who've been accused, not even people who've been convicted, but just accused to manipulate their ability to defend themselves. Um, the public defender is the last resort, the last step between you in prison for a lot of people, even a lot of innocent people who shouldn't be there in the first place. Yeah, I mean, even when I was at Rikers today, I was talking to some of the guards while I was waiting, and someone mentioned that there are people who have been there for five and six years. Uh, and again, this is, this is not a prison, this is a jail. Uh, right. They're there awaiting trial, and they've been there for five or six years. And that, that, that's just absurd. The, the idea that, tr that you know, people are not getting speedy trials, and oftentimes you know, it's blamed on the defense, and so it doesn't count against them, that's not really how it works. Like, that's not really what's going on. People are not actually getting due process in many, many cases. And that's why so many of them just flee out. Because people are told, you can get off Rikers today if you take a plea. Do you have a felony on your record? Do you have this on your record? Yeah, sure. Okay, but you're not on Rikers. Uh, the other thing you were talking about, you know, anarchism versus, you know, government. You know, philosophically, I'm an anarchist. Like, I, I believe that asymptotically we should move towards less government, less initiation of force, all of that. Uh, politically, you know, I'm a libertarian. I do believe there should be, you know, not believe, I, I I'm running in a political system where there is a government and there is a criminal justice system. And I have to you know, act within that. Um, you know, it's not some utopia that one of us dreamed up or some utopia <laughs> that someone else dreamed up that I wouldn't like. It's, it's what we have now. So I'm, I'm running within the current system uh, because it, it is the current system. Uh, 
have I ever struggled with that idea and say, you know, all government is illegitimate. What am I doing working in a court? What am I doing running for a government position? Yeah, but I feel like if you're running for office and don't have that thought, that's the problem. Right. The, the problem is too many people are running for office who fully believe in the legitimacy of the office they're running for. Um, now, I mean, what possessed you to do something like run for Congress instead of district attorney or like an office where you could have a direct impact continuing your career? Because I, I mean, I feel like the only person that can do more good in the criminal justice system than a public defender is the district attorney themselves with prosecutorial discretion and just choosing not to press charges against people for certain things. It's something I considered. Uh, I just don't think I can do it. Like, I, I don't think I can prosecute people. I, I don't think it's within my, I, maybe, maybe if it, even if it is like, okay, here's a, the, the model case, like it's a murder, they should go to jail. And I agree. I don't think it's in my, I don't think I'd be good at it. Like, it's not the way I sure. think about the law. I think about how to get people out of stuff and I, I would not be a good, uh, and maybe that's the person who should be running. You know, maybe that is the person right. who should be running. But when I think about it, I feel ill. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to do it. Uh, we we actually had, uh, it's an interesting story. We had a public defender run for DA in Queens, Tiffany Caban. She's now my city councilwoman. Uh, but she ran and she won the election. And then they did a recount and suddenly she lost. And it was by the <laughs> tiniest margin. And she lost to the most middle, you know, centrist in the bad way, uh, Democrat. Uh, and it just, we just got more of the same, but, it, but then she ran for city council and won, uh, and is now my councilwoman. I would, to build off your point, to criticize yeah. myself, I would rather he, her be the district attorney right now. Uh, you know, she would probably be, you know, using a lot of discretion. Uh, I would rather her not be, generally speaking, the, uh, the city councilwoman. I didn't vote for her. I, w I voted for a third party candidate, uh, Edwin de Jesus, who was running on, uh, the green party line for city council. Um, but look, I mean, it, it, it's a fair point. Public defenders should be running for these things. That, that's an interesting point you make. That, all those. That, that's an interesting point you make there. Like you'd re, you would have voted for for uh, a district attorney, but you wouldn't vote for her for city council. And I, I had to break this to libertarians all the time. It's like who you endorse and who you vote for. It all it really does matter what they're running for. And I remember a lot of people gave me crap when I was running for Congress because I endorsed a Democrat for a register of probate in my dist in my dist congressional district, in. They're like, why would you do that? She's a Bernie bro. She's a socialist. She's an outright like commie and a lefty. I'm like, yeah, but she wants to abolish the register of probate. Like, like I wouldn't vote for her for state rep. I wouldn't vote for her for selectman or governor, but she's running for an office with the sole like mission of abolishing it on an incredibly libertarian platform. Absolutely, I want to vote for her. Um, but like it, a public defender is exactly the kind of person I want to see as a DA. Uh, hell, I know uh, what's her name, whose name I cannot remember off the top of my head, our newest Supreme Court justice. What's her face? Um, so she was a public defender, I believe, for, right. for two years, and which is, I believe, three times longer than Joe Biden was a public defender, which I always find uh, interesting. Uh, I like to say that I've been a public defender you know, now double the, the length of a Supreme Court justice and our, our, our current president. Uh, and she was in federal uh, defense. She was doing federal public defense. And some people kind of, you know, some public defenders are like, we're in the, the, the streets, we're street fighting, and they, they go to the fancy courthouses. She was defending Gitmo detainees. Right. Mean, whatever other issues we have with her, and, and while I do like, kind of like to poo-poo a little bit, the fact that it was only two and a half years or whatever it was, I mean, she was defending like the least likable people. Um, and that, you know, that takes something. And, and if, if you start going like, oh, well, she must agree with that. 
like then then you're missing the boat. Like you're you're totally missing the point. And I think the same thing goes. I think it was you know, maybe there is some 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 issue with her decisions about the sex offenders and whatnot. But if that's the position you start taking with, with judges and with uh, attorneys, I think you're missing the point. It's an adversarial system, and and right. the judges they judge. They're making a judgment. Uh, a, a lot of people miss that. Like when when I'm providing zealous advocacy. Like I'm going to be going just as hard for the person that I know like is innocent as the person I'm 99% sure is guilty or it doesn't work because it's not my job to decide that it's someone else's job. It's the jury's job or the judge's job. So I have to go a hundred percent, no matter what I think of the client, no matter what I think of what they're accused of doing. Uh, and when you see someone who's being appointed to you know the, the highest court who's done that and has done it for like really bad people, you know, it, it's a point that you know, most other Supreme Court justices don't have. Uh, you know, I don't like most of the ones that were appointed by Trump. I, I you know, the very few Supreme Court justices I like. I will, I will give her, you know, a few decisions before I. Uh, I'll give her the benefit of the doubt here because, from what I saw, I, I think she is the only Supreme Court justice in the last like a long freaking time to have never been a prosecutor, to have never really? worked on the state side. So she, she did. Um, her time as a public defender, but then she did a bunch of clerking and mm -hmm. then was appointed to lower benches. Uh, she'd never actually worked as a prosecutor. Where everyone else at some point worked in a DA's office or was elected or was a U.S. attorney before getting a bench. Um, as far as like best judges on the court, I, I piss a lot of people off when I say I think Trump had Trump and Obama each had one of the best two appointments on the court right now. And that's Neil, I'm Gorsuch, interested in what you're... Neil Gorsuch and Sonia Sotomayor. Um, and the two I mean, of them I together. Agree with you. I think until just a few days, until just a few yeah. weeks ago, uh, Gorsuch was the best, and Sotomayor was my second favorite. Partly because I think she really believed what she was writing, even when I disagreed with her. Um, yeah. but, but Gorsuch is willing to like really pick apart these legal fictions, not always in the way that I like. Uh, and he's done some really dumb stuff more recently. But at the beginning, he was like really picking apart a lot of the legal fictions, and I, I was all about it. Uh, I remember a couple of years ago, there was an article I read. I, I forget who where it was. It might have been Cato that published it. And they titled it The Unlikely Libertarian Alliance on the Supreme Court. And they just started highlighting how a lot of people don't realize the vast majority of all cases that come out of the Supreme Court are 9-0 or 8-1. Like, yeah. it's they're inconsequential decisions that never get talked about. The people only ever care about the 5-4s and the 6-3s. Those are the only ones that make news and the people get wrapped up around. Yeah, but like the article pointed out, like some of the most landmark cases that like we should all be really disappointed about were the seven twos, because there was a whole bunch of seven twos that came out in a string where the dissent was Sotomayor and Gorsuch, and they would write a scathing dissent that would harp on property rights or um, like individual liberties or like the most libertarian issues and how the rest of the court was just eviscerating the Fourth Amendment. Yeah, and Gorsuch was really good about um, this whole idea of reasonable expectation of privacy, which is just this wholly right. invented thing. And it, it, it sounds like such a good thing, like, oh, yeah, it's a reasonable expectation, but really it's a way to get around, like, your actual property rights. It's like, okay, like, you have this property right, but you dropped it, and you put it on the ground, so now you don't have an expectation of privacy in it anymore. It, it's a way to get around all these other things. And Gorsuch wrote this, I remember laughing out loud, where he was talking about um, – it was something like, oh, if you leave your trash outside, um, the, the, you know, the government says that therefore it's no longer your property and they're allowed right, to search right. it immediately. And he was like, is this like the raccoon standard? Like if the raccoon <laughs> the then, then they're allowed to search it? Like it, it. And he broke it apart like that. And I was like, yeah, like a property rights approach is a much better way to do it. 
Um, it actually would give us more privacy than something, again, it's something with a horrible name that sounds nice, uh, the reasonable expectation of privacy. Uh, I, I'm just noticing there's a, uh, a chat um, from... Yes, uh, so Amy had a question for you about, I was going to bring this up later, but any chance the census 2020 is going to trigger redistricting in New York? Um, and if so, how's that going to affect your, affect your campaign? So, I know we're having a nightmare in New Hampshire with the redistricting right now. Um, and it's weird because the... Uh, House of Representatives gave the governor a map. They're like, yeah, we're not going to change it. The last map was fine. It wasn't gerrymandered. The, the, the Republican House of Reps gave the governor a map that let the Dem Democrats basically keep their seats in Congress. They said it's not worth us trying to gerrymander the state to try and steal a seat. Uh, and the governor vetoed it. For The governor vetoed them for not gerrymandering the state. Wow. And so now our Supreme Court has taken it over, and they're like, we're going to draw the new map. And so is it is it Spooner who talks about the Constitution being, you know, as valuable as the paper it's written on? I love um, The Constitution so, of no authority, no treason. So, yeah, so that I, I just want to make sure I was getting the right guy. Because what happened yeah. here in New York is in 2012 or 14, I forget, we amended our Constitution. But we said we will have a bipartisan de de redistricting committee, and it will work like this. It will go through this step, and then this step, and there will be this many of this many, and this many of this, and they will make bipartisan maps. And we voted overwhelmingly for it. We amended the Constitution. And so now, 2020, you know, since this happens, population change. We lose a congressman because we lost population. You know, New York is doing so well that we actually lost population, uh, or lost a congressman, our population, you know, respectively. Um, so what happened? They have to redraw the map. So it goes to the Independent Redistricting Committee. They draw one map that kind of looks like the current one, but you know, modified. And then they draw a really sensible map that's like not at all gerrymandered and like by community and like goes along roadways and public transportation. The Senate voted both down. And then they proposed two new maps. The Senate voted both down. And so the Senate just then drew their own map. And it was, you know, 100% Democratic. Uh, the Republicans lost four seats. Uh, <laughs> by doing it statistically uh, out of about 26. Uh, and they submitted that and the governor signed it. And then that got thrown out by a judge. In the middle of them out getting petitions and me getting ready to go get petitions, the judge threw out the maps. And then the next judge unthrew out the maps or kept them thrown out, but said you can keep them for this year. And now it's going to the next court, which may this week, it may have actually happened today. I have not had a chance to read the news. I've literally been working all day. Uh, but it could have come out today whether or not the maps were still good or not. So I literally don't know what district I'm running in. I'm pretty sure it's New York 14 against AOC. That's what the maps that were signed by the governor say. But I don't know if they're going to stay. And I don't want the maps to stay because they're clearly gerrymandered. They're awful. Um, they don't really affect me at all. But at the same time, party. you want to know where you're campaigning. You need I want to know where you're petitioning. Is, so every time they throw the maps out, I'm like, yeah, ah, shit. <laughs> like, what do I do now? Uh, it's a very, very strange place to be. And it's also the year that, uh, you know, in the 2020 COVID emergency bill, they snuck in a provision to make it three times harder for independent candidates and third parties like libertarians to get mm -hmm. on the ballot. They cut the, they tripled the number of signatures you needed. They cut the time in half. Uh, so now I need 3,500 signatures, not 1,100. AOC only needed 1,100 signatures. AOC needed as many signatures as I have raised in dollars. <laughs> and she has raised seven million dollars last quarter. So I've raised about eleven hundred dollars. She's raised seven million, and she needed eleven hundred signatures. I need thirty-five hundred. Now, have you considered doing what the duopoly candidates do? Just declare a district. You don't have to live in the district. And just declare what. Decide who your opponent's going to be, rather than where it's going to be. 
I don't think that would really help me at all. I mean, I, I, I don't think I, it would help you, but would it? I, I still need thirty five hundred signatures either right. way. Uh, and honestly, I you know, I, I didn't choose AOC. Like I didn't move into right. her district on purpose, and I chose to run for Congress before I really thought about that. But I was like, okay, look, <laughs> if I can bring some attention, primarily you know, to Larry Sharp and the Libertarian ticket here in New York, which is awesome. Like we have the one of the best tickets I think of any state between Larry Sharp and Tom Queter. We, we have an incredible uh, lineup of candidates here in New York, and he is the head of the ticket. If I can help get attention for libertarians and spread good attention for libertarians among the city, you know, get you know, get tons of signatures, tons of votes in the city, it will help Larry get us back that ballot line. So next time we won't need to get 3,500 signatures from me. I'll only need the 1,100. Larry won't need to get the 45,000. So I'll only need the 15,000. Uh, you know, again, the, the numbers are smaller for established campaign or established parties. We just need to be established again. Uh, you know, Suffolk County, which is out on Long Island, had as many votes for Larry Sharp as all of New York City. Uh, you know, New York City has not gotten the message. So I think we need people on the ground. So by me having my campaign on the ground uh, and you know, Larry having a lot of his people on the ground as well here in the city and spreading the, spreading the word and spreading the campaign, um, we're hoping that we'll be back on the ballot line again. And we won't have to deal with all of this again. But uh, just to respond to that question, yeah, it, the redistricting really did uh, throw a lot of wrenches. It caused me a lot of uh, heartburn and, and angst. Just wondering, like, are these signatures I'm getting any good? Or do these people live in my district? I don't know. Because I don't know what my district is. <laughs> but uh, in the end, it doesn't matter because uh, you'd I, think I'm, I, I'm not going to win the election. But Larry Sharp can get enough votes to get us on the ballot line. And then we can run more established candidates. We can run a candidate every time. We can remind people who we are. And that's what really matters. So what's your plan with your campaign? I mean, are you going to focus on your background as a public defender, your work in criminal justice? Like a public defender is essentially criminal justice reform on the front lines. That, yep. that, that's what you do every day, uh, protecting people from the state and the overreach of the state and criminal justice system. You in particular, though, like you're not like what people think of when I think public defender, uh, because like when I think public defender, I think, oh, I got arrested for weed or uh, I got arrested for like reckless endangerment in my car. Like meeting. you work in the family court system. Yeah. So why does not... a family court need a public defender? So when I meet a client, it is yeah. the day after the worst day of their life or the worst moment of their life. Someone has just kicked down their door or knocked very loudly and come and taken their children away and said, you are accused of doing X, Y, Z. Uh, you might get a lawyer. You might not. We don't. You have no constitutional rights. You have to tell us what's going on. Uh, you, have, you, know, you have no right to a lawyer until you know, we're in court. Uh, I eventually call this person and I say, OK, I, I know something happened last night. We have about 10 minutes. We're going to be in court. And we have to figure out like what our strategy is for our first court appearance together. Um, it, it is. I, I grew up in the suburbs, like a very like a rural suburb. I grew up in what used to be like an apple farm. Uh, so I had no idea there was a child protective like network. I had no idea there was a child protective industry. But in the Bronx, we're getting as many you know family court uh, neglect and abuse cases as there are criminal cases in many on many days. Uh, you know, we'll have an intake shift and we'll get you know uh, you know twenty new cases in a day. Uh, and it will be you know, just removals. And we used to get a lot more during COVID. They said it will only be cases where children are actually being removed. We used to get a lot of cases where it's like we're going to monitor and see if they need to be removed. But now they're only doing the extreme cases. Uh, the, the difference between criminal court and family court is like night and day. Because in criminal court, you have rights. Like you have a right to a speedy trial. You right. have a right, right. not to self-incriminate. Um, you have a right not to testify. Uh, you don't have any of those in family court. I mean, 
if you read it, like the Constitution, it doesn't say which court. I think they should be for all of them, but that it, it doesn't work that way. You have to testify. If you don't testify, the court is required to uh, hold it against you. Well, you're not on trial in a family court. You are. Uh, well, so if you're really, it, it's not you. Like they're not going to send you to jail. They're just going to take your kids. Is that the argument they use? So it, it, it's a it's an interesting two path system. It's something that really, if you're not in it, like you haven't been like through it as a person, uh, or if you're not a lawyer doing it, no one really understands. Which is that there's always two paths. One is when or if the kids will return home, and then there's did this thing happen. So sometimes, let's say there's a one-off thing, like a parent gets really drunk or has a you know a mental issue, and something happens, and then they get on medication or they stop drinking, the kids come home, but they're still going to get caught what's called a finding of neglect on their record. And so if uh, you know if we go to trial and lose, and they say this thing did happen in the past, and you neglected your children at that time, if they go to apply for a job working with children, or if they try to become a foster parent, or if they try to you know fight for custody with an ex or or, or someone. That will be held against them. It will be. It will come up. They'll say this is on your record. Uh, so if you're a daycare and you want to hire someone, you have to check on this special system to see if they have a finding from my court. Uh, so if there's a family court finding and you're a daycare or a school or something, uh, so it, a lot of times people will be like, I don't care if I get a fine neglect. Like you know, I'm I'm the stepdad. I'm moving out. You know, I'm not I'm not going to be part of this family anymore. And I'll just take uh, I'll just plead guilty. I don't care. Uh, but for a lot of people, it's like, well, I'm a daycare worker. Uh, and my kids got taken away in a false allegation. If I get found guilty, I will lose my job. And you know, who knows if I'll get my kids back. Uh, so there's always those two things. There's the get the kids home by showing there's no continuing risk. And then there's what was the initial thing that brought them here? And is it enough to give you that mark on your, on your record? Um, and so oftentimes I will have essentially three or four trials per case. Like the children will be taken away. I'll request a hearing. We'll lose it. You know, they'll say there's still a risk. My client will go into you know, rehab or do something, uh, and then a few months later, we'll ask for another one, and we'll have it, and we'll win or lose. And then at some point, we'll have the trial on the underlying allegation, and we'll do that, win or lose. And then if we lose really hard on all of them, and the children are still in uh, foster care for 15 months, we'll eventually have what's called a termination proceeding, which is whether to terminate the, uh, my client's rights, you know, terminate their rights to ever see their children again. Um, and that's where it gets really perverse, because they will say, you go to trial and lose, you never see them again. You have no rights. If you give up your rights, then we can enter an agreement so that you can visit and have contact with your kids. Well, what so, is like? What is the state even considering neglect and abuse of kids nowadays? Like, I, like I, I look at some of the cases that I see pop when they do go viral. They're on Twitter, or Reddit, or some of the things that wants to blow up from across the country. And I just look back at like, you're what? You're in your thirties. Thirty-three. Yeah, you, so you're you're only a year older than me. I, I remember I'd be halfway across town on my bike at 12 years old on my own buying candy from strangers. And, like, a cop would pull up and start yelling at me saying, your mom's looking for you from across I mean, town. And I'd be expected I, to make my own way back across town. I, I've, had, I've had cases where children went outdoors barefoot, and that was neglect. And the children were removed. I've had cases like that. Uh, I've also had cases where children have died. You know, it, it, there's, a, there's a wide range. And neglect really means anything that's not like super, super dangerous and persistent that's bad. And abuse means anything that is really super, super dangerous and persistent that's bad. It, it, it's such a catch-all. And I, I spend half my day sometimes explaining to clients, they're like, I, I didn't neglect my kids. They have plenty of food, like they have clothes and everything. And I'm like, yeah, but they're accusing you of getting drunk and breaking a window in front of them. And that traumatizing their emotional health. And they're like, that's not neglect. And I'm like, 
in the depth in the dictionary, no. Um, but that's how some courts will define it. So it can really mean anything. It, it can really mean anything, but a lot of things like people think should be uh, child abuse and neglect are just commonplace nowadays. And uh, <laughs> I, I will say, I got really mad at Tucker Carlson when he was like, "Call CPS on people who put a mask on their kids," and I was like, "No, don't do that." <laughs> Please, that's the worst that. thing you can do. It's like there's so many fucking things. <laughs> so, and this is a hot button issue. This is a uh, it's been a hot button issue forever. A, a lot of people, a lot of people know. I also help manage the Free State Project YouTube page and social media yep. for the Free State Project. We have a video on that channel. I'll link it in the description here because uh, I think it's kind of relevant. Of Carlos Morales, a former CPS agent who became a whistleblower and blew the whistle on corruption of CPS and how they were fabricating charges to take kids to justify budget lines and stuff. Um, yep. And he gave a talk to the Liberty Forum a few years back. And every single day I log in to check the metrics and that video has been up for years. It is still the most viewed video every day because people are searching for help with CPS systems. I, the, there's no greater fear that you can like see from someone or hear from someone when they're saying, how do I get my kids back? Like, I, I just want to get my kids back. Like I didn't do anything wrong or maybe I did do something wrong, but I won't do it again. Uh, how do I do that? And, they're, they're going to go searching. They're going to find everything. I, I have clients bring me cases, and I'm like, yeah, actually, this is good. We'll, we'll use this one. Um, it, 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 is, it is such a terrifying thing. It, it's one thing when you go to jail and you're afraid for yourself, but everyone knows that the foster system in New York is extremely dangerous for the children in it, and especially in the Bronx. And I don't want to say majority. I've never done a poll, but a, a significant number of my clients are you know, products of the foster care system. And when they hear your children, you know, your child is being moved from like the, you know, the entry uh, building where all the kids go to some private foster home, I, I've had people lose it because they know what happened to them, you know, just 10 years ago or, or two years ago. Or I've had you know, clients who are still in foster care uh, and, and their kids get put into foster care and they know what's going to happen or what could happen. And it's the most terrifying thing. And, and there's not a single judge on the bench anywhere in the Bronx, anywhere in Brooklyn, anywhere in Queens or Manhattan who's ever had that happen. There's never. None of what are the odds that, like, once a kid's put into the system, like, no matter what you do, what kind of defense you put together, how much money you guys can muster to fight the case, you never see the kids again? Like, what are the odds of that? So never seeing again is very, very unlikely. That okay. would be that would be if my, you know, if the client or if the respondent had um, a parent had done something like, like truly on the books, clearly like had murdered several other children like oh. around them. That because you you are legally entitled unless there is an extreme risk to life or health for, to supervise visits at the very least. Um, the, the problem becomes is when parents get frustrated or they're you know suffering from addiction or mental health and they stop having those visits because the visits suck. Cause you have to go to like an ACS office and have them there for a while and then eventually you get them unsupervised. Uh, but if if you stop going to them. They start the countdown clock, and that's when they terminate your parental rights, and and that's how they'll they'll get away with it. Yeah, it, it's really wild. It really is unfortunate. It's like the worst aspect of our criminal justice system. Because, I, I mean, you're right. None of these judges, none of these prosecutors, they've ever had this happen to them. They've never even been in a position where it was a remote possibility. Like, it, like how much of this is the suburban and the rich white kid privilege when you look about it? And I know libertarians hate to talk about privilege, but it's absolutely I mean, real. I, <laughs> I, I, I am the living example of it. I mean, look, yeah. I didn't even know there were agencies that took people away. It never happened. I've never heard of it in my town. Like, it never right. was. And even when I lived in the city for a while, 
Like I lived in, uh, you know, in Washington Heights where ACS is rampant. Never occurred to me. Never occurred to me until I went to law school and I did this internship thinking that it was going to be a criminal defense internship and it ended up being family defense. I was like, what the hell is that? I came into this court. I'm like, this is the place of nightmare. This is Kafka. Like, this is what he's talking about in the trial where it just keeps going and going and going. Like, and I going. can't even count. I can't even count on two hands the number of times I was arrested in high school and for dumb, petty shit, stupid shit that I'm just thinking like nowadays would be considered like a sign your kids being abused and treated like, oh, 15 caught with weed, caught selling weed at the town park, got arrested. Oh, I stole a bike because I wasn't, wasn't always a libertarian as a teenager. Uh, I didn't <laughs> have a healthy respect of property rights till I was in my mid twenties. Um, and like, I got, yeah, I got arrested a hot bit. Like, and like, I can just imagine like growing up in suburban Massachusetts outside of Boston, this never would have even crossed my mind. Yeah. No. And I grew up in suburban Massachusetts outside of Springfield, so. Yeah. But now, like, I live in Manchester, New Hampshire now. Uh, this isn't even a city. I joke. Like, Manchester is the biggest city in New Hampshire, and it's the size of the small town I grew up in, Massachusetts. Um, but the same thing. Like, I have a, an acquaintance of mine whose teenagers were recently taken because one of them got caught running around town and had a knife in his pocket. And he spent six months in placement before she could get him back. Like, here it's just rampant. And you see cops pulling kids off the side of the street all the time and just throwing them in the back of cruisers. Well, they were black and they were up to something. And we've even had cops who have been fired. Um, the police chief has tried to prosecute because on their department-issued cell phone, they were bragging about planting drugs on the black kids and sending them to CPS. And then the union fought to put that cop back on the force. So like, the whole good apple, bad apple debate is so funny to me because people forget <laughs> the ending of the, of the saying. Like, one bad apple. Spoils the whole the bunch. bunch. All the bunch. That's all of the apples. Like, now all the apples are bad. Like, the, the highest level of responsibility should be on people who are arresting people or caring for them. I, I, the, the first time I ever went to the basement of the courthouse in Bronx County Family Court to visit a client down in the holding cell, while I was logging out, I had a, you know, log out in a book, a corrections officer who I'd never seen, I've never seen again, walked up behind me and slapped me on the ass and then walked out the other door and everyone laughed. And I was like, A, that's never happened to me before. That's weird. Uh, B, my client is right there. C, like, these are the people who are in charge of like taking my client from this holding place and bringing them to, to jail, like every day when we, while we're doing court. Like, what is he? If they're doing that to me, again, we don't like to talk about privilege allegedly, but I've got a lot of it. Uh, if they're willing to do that to me, what are they doing to my clients? What are they doing to everyone's clients? Like these people, like the whole frat boy like ideology in a prison or in a jail, like that. That's the last. Like maybe at like a Wall Street firm, don't do that at a at a jail. Like like that is the highest level of responsibility. Maybe we need to pay them more. Maybe we need to pay corrections officers and cops more. And we need to really go hard on the ones who mess up. Or maybe pay them the that. same, but make them require, like, make them carry personal liability and, like, make them individually liable for any issues that they come across. Like, if, if you kill someone in the line of duty and it's found to be like you were at fault and it wasn't, uh, and it wasn't a justified shooting, your insurance payout. If you become too insure, if you become too expensive for the insurance company to insure, you can't be a cop anymore. And, and I say apply the exact same thing. And, and look, the, people respond to incentives, right? So when there's less of a disincentive to do something, they're going to do it. 
And oh man, I'll, I'll grab mine in a minute. Uh, <laughs> when there's less of a disincentive to do something, people will, will, will do it if it either benefits them or is easy or is convenient, right? And so that explains both police behavior, like, oh, like it benefits me to have more arrests, so I'll plant drugs. But it also goes to corporations, right? We, we have these things called corporations, which are limited liability companies. You know, they're, they're places that you, know, you, the person making decisions, are not personally liable for all of the actions of your company. And so it qualified immunity and the whole corporate structure are the same problem, wherein we're protecting people from the actual, uh, the, the actual damages from their crimes or from their wrongdoing. If a cop shoots someone and gets away with it, it tells all cops they can get away with it. If an oil company spills oil all over the entire Gulf of Mexico and no one goes to jail and they knew they would never go to jail, what's to stop other people from taking the same risks? Oh, they had to pay some money? It's not my money. It's not the CEO's money. He's exactly money. like that's if what you we know have you have immunity. Have to, sorry, go ahead. If you know you have immunity, that's exactly it. I have a funny story I tell people all the time back when I was uh, in school. Um, I went to school for, uh, I went to Mass Maritime, went to go work in the Merchant Marine cargo ships. I decided I hated it, moved on with my life, went back to the Army. Terrible decision, again. I'm not known for good decision making until my 30s. Um, but property rights 20, decision making 30s. Okay, got it. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember working in the engine room one day. We were like, we're in the middle of the goddamn Atlantic Ocean. There, there's nobody for days around us, and we had an oil spill in the bilge of the ship, like in the engine room, completely contained. We could clean it up, but it was a, it was a like 800 gallons of oil that was spilled all throughout the engine room. And we just start pumping it overboard and we're just pumping this oil straight overboard. And we're thinking nothing of it. And the environmental officer comes screaming, sprinting into the engine room. What are you guys doing? This is not worth elite. This is not legal. We're going to get fined. And I just remember the chief engineer, a Navy captain, Sitting back and said, who the fuck's going to find us? The Navy? Like, <laughs> it, it's, like when I get, it's like when I see someone get sanctions against ACS, and then ACS yeah. has to pay some, some other organization, or they have to pay some individual. I'm like, well, that's just coming from our tax money. Like, right. uh, ACS being the Child Protective uh, Agency in New York. Uh, like, when, when you find the government, like, that, that's not how it works. People should be afraid of consequences. Like that's how all the rest of us get along. Right. Like if, if I, the only reason like, you know, a lot of people don't lose it on the subway when they're smashed in with all these, is because they you know it's like, if I lose my cool, like, you know, there's going to be consequences. And the reason people don't just say, oh, there's something on the shelf I want. I'm just going to take it. So they know if they lose their cool, there'll be consequences. Some people act, you know, because they're, they're high and mighty and they're moral and they, they want to do the right thing. But a lot of people go because there's consequences. There's no consequences. And there's a huge reward for taking the risk or for doing the dumb or bad thing, they're going to do it. Why wouldn't they? History has proven it. We need to make government employees, and that includes cops on the front line, includes corrections officers, obviously. I would say that includes corporate executives. Because corporations are government entities. You cannot start a corporation without going to the government and filling out your forms. David Hogg tweeted about this the other day. Um, you know, I hate when I agree with that kid. No, we should love it. We should love well, it. This is how we build. I, I, I get it. I get it. It's just like he's so known for being wrong on everything that when he hits gold, like the once, like once every six months, he puts out a tweet that's just like absolute gold. And is I'm like, his, is, is he in his thirties yet, Mister O'Donnell? No, no, he's actually an undergrad. And I remember Harvard. that you testified that you only had good sense when you made it to your thirties. Listen, I didn't. I wasn't an undergrad at Harvard. <laughs> 
on a full ride. <laughs> but he, he's, you know, he's a, I, I was about to say e celeb, that'd be horrible. I mean, he, he's famous for a horrible thing, but he, he's not famous for something that he, you know, he's not at Harvard because he's like the smartest kid at the school. Um, that's my, <laughs> maybe he is. I, I actually don't know all that much about it. I've never watched an interview with him. I just know he's the anti gun guy who, unfortunately, was at that school when it got yeah, He has that. a standing ovation to come on the show anytime. He said he wanted to talk to people about differences politely, and uh, I emailed him. He's got a standing ovation to come on anytime for that. So come on, David. <laughs> I'd be all for that. I'd, I'd, yeah. I'd watch that. So, but no, it's the last one. Like, I think it's right on thread. The last golden tweet he had, like his tweet about starting an LLC to do business across state lines, is being a nightmare. The paperwork's a mile and a half deep. I've done it. I got, I, I've got a few LLCs that I own for different businesses that do business across state lines. It is a legitimate nightmare. Um, even just car insurance on a corporately owned vehicle from one state to another is a nightmare trying to deal with. Um, so and it, were it not for those nightmares, you and I may have met already. Because my brother used to be a brewer in Boston. He was north of Boston. He was, yes. first, he was, a, brewer, he was a brewer at Cambridge Brewing Company for a while. Uh, and then he started his own Enlightenment Ales. And he first he tried to go to Ayer. I think that's how you say it. Massachusetts. A-Y-E-R. Uh, and he had it all planned. He had the place rented, ready to go. But the town would not approve his boiler. They kept saying, bring it to this board. And then that board's like, we don't approve that kind of boiler. And then he brought it to another board. And they're like, we would approve it, but we don't have the approval to approve that kind of boiler. And so he couldn't actually put anything inside his brewery. So he had to move it to, um, oh, God, what's the name of that town just north of Boston where they built the casino? Um, Everett. Everett. He had to move to Everett. So he set up in Everett with Idle Hands, another great brewery. Um, They they had a great little setup there for a while. I think they're still there, uh, but in a different location because... After they had gotten everything set up, after they had signed a two-year lease, to about 19 months into the lease, it was determined that the site would be taken through eminent domain in order to build a <laughs> casino in Everett. So they built a casino on the, the shattered remains of my brother's brand new brewery. Uh, again, they, the government took land. They reimbursed the landowner, which wasn't my brother. He was renting. Uh, they reimbursed the landowner. My brother you know, lost his lease at the end of it. He just gave up on the country. He didn't just leave Massachusetts. He left the, the country, left the continent. He, went, he got a job in Denmark and worked there for a while. Now, luckily enough, he started a, a new brewery out in, in Washington. But again, it, it took him 18 months of paperwork, essentially, just to get the brewery off the ground. And yeah. we should want people to start businesses. Like I, I, I don't get why it is so in, clearly intentional in, in making it overly laborious. God uh, for forbid he had any like criminal background trying to start a business. Oh, I, I can't even imagine. I, I, and look, I mean, we're 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 from a small town, right? so we, we probably don't have a criminal background. You know, that that's probably what most people just assume. Um, I'm sure he's committed plenty of crimes, though. Right, but he got away with them. But like, imagine like maybe not some of your clients, but other public defenders' clients. Like, here's something that's always bothered me about like public defenders. Um, I I know it's the most important and critical role in the court system and in criminal justice. And I will never deny that fact, but like how many public defenders just get so overwhelmed and look at cases and say, you should just plead this out knowing your client's innocent. So I, obviously I, I would like to say I've never done that. Um, I've, <laughs> look, I have 77 clients right now, which is a lot. I, right. I feel very overwhelmed in, I work for an organization with social workers for clients, with advocates, with, with, you know, I, I have people helping me. You know, I, I have a supervisor who's there every moment that I need them. Um, you know, I, I have I work for a, an organization with a lot of support. 
But for every client that I take, there's a client on the other side of the case that an independent attorney has to take. We can't represent both sides. Um, those independent attorneys, they have not gotten a raise in the state budget for 17 years. They were expecting one at the beginning of April. They were told they would get one. They're getting the same rate they got 17 years ago. Uh, they did not get it in the new budget. And they are now all quitting. And so there are people who I knew who had 350 cases, the same type of cases that I have, uh, who are now doubling their caseload. So they're going to make a ton of money. Uh, and some of these people I trust not to do what you just said. I trust them to jump off a bridge before that happens. Um, <laughs> but some people who... I'm not gonna I just hear horror stories. Like, like I, I have had one horrible... Uh, one experience, and it wasn't horrible. I have had one experience in my life with a public defender and it worked out better than I could have ever hoped for because I went into this experience just hearing horror stories of public defenders. Every time I got arrested as a kid or a teenager, I had my mom's lawyer. My mom had money. She had a lawyer. It was fine. But one time I got arrested, and I did some bad stuff in my early 20s, and I don't shy from it. Uh, I don't talk about it often, but like I'm sitting in court, and judge assigns me a public defender, and I'm like, here we go. And the public defender is like, you should plead out to this. I'm like, I am guilty. Like, I'm just running through my head. I'm like, there's no doubt in my mind. They have security camera footage. Um, But, like, I'm like, what's the pro and con of pleading out? And he comes back to me. He's like, they're offering you six months probation and a quaff at the end of it. I'm like, plead the fuck out. Like me, who was clearly guilty, like, got offered a plea deal that left me with no criminal record. But, like, how many people who are innocent, like, this, it strikes me up, this might be more of a federal thing with big cases, like, the higher profile cases. I was watching Molly's Game the other night with some friends, um, which is based on a true story. I don't know if you've seen the movie about a girl who ran poker no. games. She ran poker games in uh, L.A. and New York, and uh, when she was in New York at the end of her run, she started to get wrapped up with the Russian mob, and they wrapped her up in a RICO case. Uh, and she goes on a rant. Her lawyer's like, he's like, you're clearly innocent of everything they've indicted you for. There's no way this stands in trial. However, they civilly asset forfeitured all your entire bank account, all $4 million to your name. Um, like, you no longer have a job. Like, they took away your ability to defend yourself. You can't. You don't have the $250,000 for a lawyer that can fight this and deal with it. It's going to be a three-year-long case, but you don't have the ability to pay rent in that meantime. You have to plead out because you can't afford to live. Or stay in jail because you can't afford the bail. Right. I mean, man, I, 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 people think that doesn't happen. Like, those are extreme cases. They're, they're not, except that they happen to people who aren't famous and rich. Like, like I, I've had clients, it is such a regular thing to have a client made homeless by a case. Case comes in, order of protection is issued, you're kicked out. Whether your partner wants you kicked out, whether the kids want, want you kicked out or not, you're now homeless. And if you don't want to go to a shelter and get, you know, robbed or beat up, you're going to be sleeping on the street. I, I have clients who sleep on the subway. They let me know what train they were on the night before. And it's because they're being kicked out and they're afraid of the shelters. And not for bad reason oftentimes. No. The, at least the subway, you know people wake up there every morning. <laughs> like, yeah. But, no, I, I got a friend going through something similar. Um Fortunately, he's someone who comes from means. He's someone with a very, very high-paying job going through a very nasty and bitter divorce. Who um, realized he's paying, like he's spending upwards of twenty thousand dollars a month on his soon-to-be ex-wife's living expenses. Well, he's not allowed to enter the home. 
that's before lawyers' fees, before any of the actual court costs or anything. Like he did out of budget, it's like upwards of twenty thousand dollars a month that she's just spending of his money, and he's I not would, even allowed in the property. If you're gonna pull a thing, let's just assume your friend is like absolutely yeah. the good guy and that she's the the bad one, and that's just for for argument's sake. Like if you're gonna be the one like scamming the guy for the money and like the twenty grand, at least invest it. Like, like, put it into something, you know, like, 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 buy the dip or something like that. It just seems like you're just going to spend it. I don't know. Well, no, it, it's like all legitimate. Like, it, like he, like I questioned him, like, how the hell is that possible? And he sent me like the breakdown he did for the court law, for the lawyer. And it was like rent, her car payments, the, uh, her kids' car payments, um, rent for her kids' apartment, like all everything he's paying for her lifestyle. Um, that he can afford, but barely, and while he's living in an Airbnb. My my favorite question to get from from clients is, uh, "Do you do divorce law as well?" And I say, "No, never. I don't. <laughs> Just don't get married. It's not, it's not part of my subcontract. <laughs> like it, it's not. So like, I, I yeah. I'm not. You know, I do only the only legal work I'm allowed to do is for my employer. My employer doesn't do divorces. So no, I'm sorry. Like we can right, refer you right. to people, but you know, as bitter as my, I do custody. You know, I, I do if it's connected to a neglect or abuse case. I, you know, I do a paternity if it's connected to those cases, but never a divorce. And I'm so glad. Well, I mean, it seems like they'd be kind of intertwined in family court, especially if this kid is involved in a divorce. That you might want someone like you involved. Yeah, I mean, custody can often run separately from from divorce proceedings. Yeah. I mean, I know so little about that divorce that I don't even know if it's part of the divorce proceedings usually, or if it's a separate thing there. Um, and I've done custody, and those, you know, as you can imagine, those can get like very personal and bitter. Um, but just the idea of being a divorce attorney, I never like when people are like, Oh, a family lawyer, are you a divorce attorney? No, right? I don't know, not me. No, family lawyer, honestly, when I first read you're a family lawyer, I, I think somebody in the office never goes to court, and then then I saw the slap of public defender on there, and I was like, What it, it turned gears in my head, like, yeah, before meeting you, before reading into you, like, I never imagined that a family court would even need a public defender. I mean, today, Never mind I how had, critical it is. I had seven cases today. Seven cases in court today. I, luckily, they were all virtual, so I appeared virtually. But just for an example, like one of them was a hearing to determine, you know, uh, it, it's a type of, I'm going to give the type of hearing, so I'm not identifying anybody. One was a type of hearing where it's, should a child stay in foster care for the next six months, or should we plan to terminate someone's rights? Another was an emergency hearing to say, should the child remain in foster care for like today, or should it come home today? Uh, you know, is there still imminent risk? Another was a trial on the underlying allegations of an old case where the children are all home and everyone's fine. Another one was supposed to be a trial like that, but my client actually did really well. He did all the services he was recommended to do, uh, you know, got all the money to the service providers from the state. Um, and he actually got his case dismissed. Uh, and then I had a few, I don't even remember, and then I had a conference. Uh, so I was in court all day. Uh, they're all different types of things. If you're in criminal law, like you either have a trial or you don't, and then you have arraignments, and the rest of it is negotiating with uh, with prosecutors and you know, depositions and meetings and not even most of it's just you know reviewing evidence, seeing do we have a case or no, or do we take the plea? Uh, and you know, ninety six percent of the time, the take answer the is take the plea. I you know, I have clients to take pleas, but I I don't think I've had more than five percent of my cases I have some kind of hearing. Uh, so when I realized there was a public defense role where not only could I defend people who have no rights, where like it's literally just me having to convince the judge that my client is safe to be around their kids with no rights. If I, I have that and I can be in court every day arguing, I, that feels like the front lines to me. 
Uh, so that's where I want to be. I honestly feel like the very fact that you have to make that argument is a testament of how far the state has gone too far because like whether or not someone is safe to be around their children is one of the very last things I want the government to be in charge of deciding. Think of this. You, you, let's say you have three kids and they're all young and one just dies and you don't know why. Yep. And you live in the middle of nowhere. Or you know you live in a nice area, that's probably where it ends. Like you know you the you know, the medical examiner comes, takes them away. That's the end of it. If you live in the Bronx, you now have an ACS case. There's no avoiding it. That is what will happen every time a child dies in the Bronx and there's another child involved. There's an ACS case, like a, a sibling. It when people say there's no such thing as systemic racism, like. I, maybe we have gotten rid of racism altogether and everyone is high and, and above it, but it is lingering in effect. Like whether or not there's any thought of it, it's there in effect because it's happening in the Bronx and Brooklyn and in parts of Queens and in parts of Manhattan, but not in other parts. No, I, I, you, you tell me a young child has their sibling die, tragic accident, cancer, sickness, whatever, drive-by shooting, robbery gone wrong, whatever. The last thing that kid needs is a court date. Yeah. I, I, so, I, and it, something even like you go to the park, you your kid falls, breaks their leg. Like, the last thing that you need is to be in court, but that's what's going to happen, unless you have it on video. Like, but only in the Bronx. If you're on the Upper East Side, yeah, never. But if I you're remember, in the Bronx, it, that is my the dad, immediate assumption. My dad tells me this story all the time. When I was a kid, um, he was like in our backyard doing work, cutting down trees, chopping firewood and everything. And I was just being a raucous little asshole running around, uh, causing problems. I was like seven years old or something. He said, and like, at one point he, he tied me to a tree. He said, fuck it. You're causing problems that he tied me to a tree. And I untied myself. I escaped, used the rope he had given me to, uh, climb said tree and, uh, gotten up about 30, 40 feet, fell and split my head open. And he takes me to the emergency room. And the way he tells the story is, I have no memory of this, but he tells the story is, my dumbass couldn't sit still in the emergency room waiting room, so I'm climbing all over the bookshelves and all over the furniture trying to see how high up the walls I can get in the emergency room when the police come in to ask what happened. And I tell, and I started the story off with, well, my dad tied me to the tree. He wasn't how arrested. How was he you taken? Yeah, he wasn't arrested. I was that I got my stitches and we went home. Once he explained to the cops that I was just being an asshole. <laughs> yeah, it, I, I guarantee you that if that had let's say it's the same word, it would have been uh you know we you know we, we hereby accuse uh you know Justin O'Donnell's dad of you know uh, allowing uh, or inflicting harm to cause to his you know physical or emotional health in that he uh, tied him to a tree in that he allowed him to climb up a tree and then fall out of it in that he called his son an asshole. Like that would be one of the allegations. It would be in your petition. I, I, it's all the time. I'm not like, I'm not making this up. Like if someone says like, yeah, she was being a little, like oh, she was being a little bitch or she was doing this. Like, you know, like, some parent is frustrated that someone at their, it's just like, yeah, my, my kid was acting up. They were being a dick. Like that will be quoted as you are a monster. Like it will be thrown back in your face every single time. Uh, and if you say, hey, uh, you can suck my dick or fuck off, that is in case notes that I, I had to review today, uh, it will be in the case notes and it will be in the petition. It will say, the you know, the respondent mother said, you can suck my dick and fuck off 
to a government you know, employee who is there to, to ensure the safety of her children, and the judge will be aghast. They'll be shocked. How could someone who has someone, some kind person at their door to take their children curse? <laughs> kind person at the door to take their children. God. I mean, they're, they're child protective specialists. What are you talking about? That It's in the name. <laughs> I remember it, it, it reminds me of when I first, when I enlisted in the army. I ridden my bike down to the mall, went to the army recruiting office. My like, fuck yeah, fuck this. I'd gotten mad at my mom. I'm like, I'm only like 17 at the time. Turns out, 17 as a minor, you can't vote, you can't buy cigarettes. You absolutely can sign that piece of paper at the recruiter's office, and it's binding. <laughs> uh, but like at one point, like wow. their phone keeps ringing. Once my mom figured out where I was, she'd called my dad. She's like, "Where is he?" And he's like, "Oh, he said he was going down to the recruiter's office." And my dad was supportive. He said, "Yeah, go and list. Do it. You're a piece of shit." Um, because like I kept getting arrested. I was like, yep. he's like, "You're not going to college. Might as well go join the army." He's like, "Do it." And my mom's calling the recruiter's office. Just the phone ringing, 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 ringing. And finally, they put on speaker. She's like, "I'm gonna call the government on you." And I just had a recruiter saying, ma'am, I am the government hung up. <laughs> I am the law. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, like, no, that's the attitude. I feel like these people, the like CPS agents, like, what is, like, we have liability. We have seen there be liability for cops. We have seen cops who've crossed the line get prosecuted. It's rare, but it happens. What's the liability with CPS agents? I've literally never seen it. I, I've literally never seen it, and I have had cases where you, we have proven, you know, beyond any reasonable doubt, and gotten CPS workers moved off a case that they you know, fabricated something or you know did something horribly inappropriate, asked a client to do something horribly inappropriate. If I get to the level that would probably convict a cop, it will get the CPS worker changed. That's what it will get me in family court. Uh, you know, some people will ask for sanctions, but again, like who are they being paid to and for what? Uh, it, it, they're kind of pointless and you never win them. Um, but no, I have never seen a CPS worker discipline. I'm sure it happens, uh, but it's probably for filling out paperwork wrong or for you know, logging more hours than you actually worked. That's that. Overtime fraud. Overtime it, it, fraud is what gets them. I, I do try to think about this and I do try to tell my clients to think about this when we're in court because it helps you know, form our, our emotional you know, posture, which is that CPS workers, whatever you think of them, and I have a strong opinion, they have the worst job in the world, right? They have to, let's say there is a client who's trying to kill their kids and, you know, someone has to go get them. You have to go to some angry person's house because they're angry because you're there uh, and take their kids from them. Like if that has to be done at all ever, and I think most people will agree that either a community or a government, if there's any role for it, is, you know, if someone's having a psychotic break or is, you know, you know it, it, inebriated on drugs and trying to hurt their children, someone should stop them. Uh, and that's the, the CPS worker. The problem is that's like 1% of my cases, like the ones where there's like an immediate, like huge, awful need. Uh, so most of the time they're just busybodies. And what I try to tell my clients is, look, you should see it as a compliment that they're trying to drag your case out. Because do you think they want it? They're allowed to have 12 cases. Do you want them or whatever number it is now? Uh, do you think they want 12 cases like you? Or do you think they want 12 cases where people are beating their kids with baseball bats currently right now? Uh, they want cases like you. So, like, you know, like while it does suck that we're stuck well, here or, or we're still in court and your kids are still in foster care, uh, the reason they're dragging their feet is not because they hate you. The reason they're dragging their feet is because that's not that bad. Uh, that doesn't usually cheer people up. but it, it's That's, a way a that's an incredibly perverse incentive. Like, people, like, there people has to be, 
there has to be a way to create some kind of incentive structure that incentivizes them to not go after parents who don't need going after, like, or penalize them. They need there needs to be some kind of penalty. I, I have I've only I've only once seen that I can remember for sure someone where they admitted we were wrong to file this. It only happened once, and it had to do with a car crash, uh, and whether that was neglect. And it was not my client's fault that, of the car crash, and they admitted like we we were wrong. Uh, the kids were all buckled, blah blah blah. Um, I've, I've, and again, I've had like 500 cases, and I've won a lot of cases. Like I've gotten cases dismissed at trial. You know, I, I've, I've, and they don't need to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. They need to prove by preponderance of the evidence. They only need 51 percent to convince the judge. Uh, you know, and I, and I've, I've won cases. You know, I've won lots of hearings. I've gotten lots of kids home. I would not be doing this job if I didn't win on occasion, because it's, otherwise it'd be miserable. Uh, it's just people who are sad all the time. Um, I forgot where I was going with that. Well, I mean, what you have done is, I, I mean, maybe a little bit of confirmation bias. I came in with an expectation that the family court system was the worst part of the criminal justice system and public defenders are the most important. And all you've done is reinforce that uh, incredibly. Um, and I mean, maybe you should, maybe someone like you should run for Congress. Maybe this isn't something you could do as a DA, but lightning strikes a bottle and you win. Like, what? Well, Maybe this is a legislative issue that needs to be addressed to fix CPS. Well, to all fix of this, all of these standards, like the, yep. all the standards I argue in court, like uh, imminent risk or you know reasonable risk of bodily harm, all these things are passed down through federal legislation. That the feds will outline what you need or in order to get federal funding uh, for your state statute. It's just like the drunk driving laws, where you have to make it twenty-one, or you have to make it point oh eight, or you don't get the federal highway funds. They do the same thing for foster care funds. So. It, these laws are fairly universal. The way that courts interpret them state to state can be different. You know, so one state might say imminent risk is defined this way. Another state might say this way. And sometimes if there's another state that defines it better. I might borrow their language and say, we should really, we should just <laughs> go with what Minnesota says or whatever it is. Um, but yeah, a lot of it is federal. And people think, oh, it's just a state. It's really not because it, it's the federal government, you know, twisting the arm of every single state saying this is the, the standard you should have. But there's also a constitutional issue. I think that your constitutional rights should apply in family court. Like, I, I think all of them should be apply in family court. There's nowhere in the Constitution that this one applies to this, this one, or that, except for the, the civil court. Like, you get a jury if it's over a certain amount. Like, you should have a right not to talk to a CPS worker. You should have a right to say, come back with a warrant. You should have a right to not testify at a, a ACS trial. Uh, you know, all, all of this should be just like it is in, in criminal court. You should have a right to a speedy trial. Right, you should have a right to discovery at the same rate, uh, but you don't. And and for for so many people, and honestly, I hate to say it because I am one, but or I was one. But for like suburban people living suburban lives, they've never even heard of this. And that's me until like six years ago, until seven years ago. Right. Uh, it, it it is a, and what most people don't realize is that, or maybe they do. Like people who are going through this system, they're the ones who later end up in the criminal system. Or they're the ones who were in the criminal system already and, that, and then had children. It, it is a horrible cycle. And a lot of people like to think, oh, well, they're criminals. That's why their kids are being taken away. Or, oh, you know, I think that things start that's, at the family level. 
It's a right? cycle and, that and, feeds itself. Like you take kids away from their parents, you put them in a shitty situation where they don't get the attention they need to mature as children and adults, and you put them into a position where they don't know how to take care of themselves. Crime is the only option. Then their kids are going to get put into the system. But it, it even trust. It teaches people not to trust. It teaches people not to have you know long lasting bonds. So like when you're in when you're in the foster care system, especially in the Bronx, like every kid in the Bronx in certain neighborhoods will know. There's certain things you have to do when you're in foster care. Like if you're having trouble, you have to tell people like I'm being molested. Like it, there's a, a lot of times the moment a kid is being a kid says that a foster parent is being molested, everyone will roll their eyes because they're like, oh, you know, that's what everyone says. It, and it, it becomes a boy who cried wolf scenario, which is the most disturbing thing because you know, there's no cameras in foster homes. They're not going in and you know checking them every day. Uh, you know, uh, the good foster parents are the bedrock of the earth. They're the greatest people on the planet. Um, but what are the chances that that's most of them? Like well, even, I mean, even most of them. Because there's financial incentives to be a foster parent, isn't there? And to have as many kids in your as foster care you as possible and to have the highest risk kids as possible, uh, <laughs> the hardest control kids. Uh, you get paid more, the more complicated it is. And, and again, some of that very much deserves. If you have a kid who's on a feeding tube or it's just you know, a, a regularly abled kid, that's a very different expense and I get to be trained in a different way. But again, that's usually not, I don't want to say usually. I, I don't want to paint foster parents with a too broad of a There are enough bad cases of foster parents that it is a trope. Yeah. Yeah. But again, it, it's one of those things where if you're not in it, you're not sure like, is it all like what we see on TV or is it all like what we hope it is? It really is a awful mix. Like, any amount of what we are imagining the worst is, is not acceptable, obviously. But it, it's more than I think most people would expect. Like, th there is a lot of harm, and some of it's not even from foster parents. It might be from their kids, or it might be from other kids in the foster care. Like, a lot of times, the, the person that you meet in foster care who's going to harm you is another foster child you know, who's been harmed by someone else, and now is you know, taking that out on you. Um, it, it, it's, it is, it's, it's just the same argument that libertarians use for, for jail. You know, like, don't send, you know, nonviolent criminals to jail. They come out violent criminals. Uh, don't even call them criminals. Like, we should stop doing that. Uh, but that often happens with foster care. You have kids who are in trauma or, or allegedly being traumatized, now definitely being traumatized and thrown together with a stranger who may or may not traumatize them further. It, it, it should be a last resort. And unfortunately, every time a child goes to foster care and is harmed, it does not make headlines. Every time a, a child is kept with their parents and they end up being harmed, it makes headlines. Every time a child is with their parent in a, a family court case and they, they die or have a broken bone, it'll be on the front page of the New York Post. And every judge, their only intention is to make sure they are not the judge on the front page of the New York Post because their yeah, child yeah. goes to Harvard Law School and that would be horribly embarrassing. For them. Yeah, well... This has been an incredibly enlightening conversation. I learned more than I knew I wanted to learn about family courts in New York and how awful and terrible of an experience it must be to be there every day. Um, what is your elevator pitch? Like all of this, with your experience, why is it so important that someone like you, with your experience, is representing the Libertarian Party on the ballot line and helping run for office? Like, like what what's your elevator pitch for your campaign to your constituents? Your 30 seconds. Well, I could do even shorter than 30 seconds. We almost always elect people who have never represented anyone from their community, ever. I have represented people in this community. I have experience doing it. No one else has experience doing this. And I've also been a bartender. So therefore, I'm as experienced as my competitor. 
<laughs> All right. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on here. Thank you so much for coming on tonight. I, I got, I Where got can everyone follow you? I got one plug that I have to make. Oh, yep. This Saturday. This Saturday at 420. So 430 at 420 at Rikers Island. We're going to be at the Rikers Island Bridge. We're not going to go onto the island, just to be careful. But yeah, it will be on my website, 420 p.m. on 430. Uh, myself, uh, Thomas Queter, our U.S. Senate candidate, and a whole bunch of the libertarians running for office, we will be planting uh, cannabis seeds around the Rikers Island Bridge. I have some germinating right now. Uh, and we're, we're doing essentially a memorial and celebration uh, a memorial for all the lives destroyed over there for cannabis possession, but also a celebration of the rights that we've now gained. So we'll also be passing out free cannabis, including some of my home grow. How many people are in Rikers Island for possession? Do you know? Right now, none. And that, okay. that's what we're celebrating. But how uh, many millions have gone through it? I, I had the number in front of me earlier. It, it, is, it, it is hundreds and hundreds of thousands. And, and I will also add this. You can still get in trouble for marijuana in family court. <laughs> uh, hey well everybody go check out how 2022.com uh learn more about jonathan's campaign follow him on twitter jonathan see how uh interact learn get involved if you're in new york they're petitioning they desperately need your help and especially because new york's doing shady new york shit like they do every election cycle and trying to ban out-of-state help again um so get if you're in new york reach out see how you can get involved help them go collect petitions um, it's not easy, but it's not hard. All you can do is talk to people. Uh, and it's usually a fun day. You bring a friend and you get to meet members of your community. You didn't know cared. Uh, so it's something I love doing. Petition is one of my favorite parts of every campaign. Get out there, help them do a petition for Larry, petition for Tom, petition for Jonathan, get them, everybody on the ballot, move forward in, uh, moving on. And anything else you want to plug Jonathan? I mean, it, it's really all about petitioning. None of this is going to matter if we don't get on the ballot because we'll never get on the ballot again. So, so if, if you're you not in New York, go give them a donation. How much I have does, a spare room. Much? If you live in New York, message me. You can come live in my spare room and you can come petition. Uh, I know other people. Like we, We're getting desperate. Like, come help. We need it. Like, How many got, dollars not, buys one petition? How many dollars? So you're not allowed to do that. It's actually in the law. You're not allowed to say how really? much dollars. You have, you have to pay people per hour. Um, it, it is explicitly okay. against the law to pay per petition, although we found out that some libertarian paid petitioners we had hired got poached at a buy the petition uh, price Yeah, by, tell you what, uh, by going, another party. Uh, which the, was a going lot of rate, the going rate in New England, Massachusetts, Maine, New Hampshire, and some other petition states right now is about 4 to $5 per signature collected. So In New York, double it. Yeah, if you can't make it's it to New York, if, if you're out of New York and you can't help... Um, head on over to Jonathan Thomas's and Larry's websites, LPNY, throw them a couple bucks, help them get a couple signatures. Um, and hopefully until next time, everybody stay free. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of subversive. Make sure to like subscribe and turn on notifications to get alerted every time we go live on YouTube and make sure to leave some comments and reviews on whatever platform you listen on. Let me know what you thought of this episode. And a huge thanks and shout out to our sponsors and the awesome members of the Insurgency on Patreon. If you enjoyed this content, you can join the Insurgency on Patreon by following the links in the description for patreon.com slash And if you can't catch the show live, you can always catch it the next day on YouTube, Odyssey, Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Breaker, 
CastBox, and wherever else you listen to your favorite podcast every day. So until next time, everybody, be free.